The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Welcome to Citizens Church. Glad to, to be here with you guys. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve uh, as the pastor here. Really excited. Grab a Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Just like we did last week, we're going to hang out there for a little bit. I want to give us a biblical foundation based in the creation of God to kind of set us up for where we're going in Ephesians chapter 5. I thought that uh, the only way to follow up a sermon on sex was to talk about marriage rules, and no better way to do that than on Memorial Day weekend. So happy long weekend to us. I'm going to go long today. I tried to cut some stuff. I just couldn't, uh, but I think we need to hear this from God's word. And so buckle up. You can sleep in tomorrow. It's going to be great. Genesis chapter one, if you couldn't tell from the video and Cole's reading, we're talking about the roles of a husband and a wife. And before we do that, I want to say some things specifically to two groups in our church. So the first is I want to speak to the women that are here visiting or are members uh, as a part of our church. Here's some things I want to say to you. First, I want to acknowledge and wholeheartedly condemn all the ways that Ephesians 5 and passages like it have been misused throughout church history. I also want to acknowledge and wholeheartedly condemn all of the ways that women have been hurt and abused and mistreated and looked as less than throughout history and throughout even our world today. I also want to acknowledge some of the fears that you guys might have going into a passage like Ephesians 5. Let me speak to the singles in our church. I want you to know that we value you, we see you, that we want to walk alongside of you and be a church family and community for you. We're not preaching this passage to elevate marriage above where the Bible elevates it. Honestly, it's Ephesians 5, and that's where we're at in the book, and so we're preaching it. But I want you to know that we see you, that we want to be close to you. Secondly, you have a role to play in the lives of your married friends. Just because you're not married and they are doesn't mean you can't speak God's word and God's truth to them and to their marriages and bring wisdom and the spirit empowerment to their marriages. So you have a role to play in the lives and marriages of your married friends. I also want to encourage you that if you do hope to get married one day and the Lord chooses to give you that, that you would see these things in the person that you're dating and how you're approaching dating, all of that. Uh, and lastly, we felt burdened enough that we're actually, uh, Jacob and I are heading to his house after this, and we're going to report, record the, the midweek podcast that we do right away, and we're going to release it early in conjunction with the sermon. And it's basically going to be sermon part B, where we're going to flesh out how Ephesians 5 applies to singleness. And so we're going to do that. We're going to release those together tomorrow morning. No pressure, Jacob. Thanks for editing it quickly. Um, but, we, but we feel burdened to serve you through this passage, all of that. So all that being said, I know there's a lot of landmines everywhere. I'm going to stay a little bit closer to my notes. I want us to uh, encourage us to let our guards down just a little bit as we look at God's words. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Genesis 1 together. God, we are grateful to get to gather with your people. We're grateful to get to sing and remember that our only hope and peace, our only righteousness, is in Christ, in his blood, in his body. And I pray that we'll remember that. God, I pray that we will live in light of that. God, I pray that we will apply that good news of the gospel into our marriages as we think about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be married, to put the gospel on display. We need you. We love you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
Genesis 1, we're going to start in verse 26. Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right. So God creates humanity in his image. Same thing we saw last week. We as humans are the apex, the pinnacle of God's creating work. We are the the climax. We're the big point. But the author of Genesis includes some specific details that are important for us today. So he doesn't just say that God creates mankind in his image full stop. He goes on to include a detail. He says, let us create man in our image, male and female, he created them. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Now here's why this matters. That means with men and women, there is undeniable equality of personhood. You cannot say that men matter more than women or that women are more important than men. You can't say that one is greater than or less than the other. Both men and women, male and female, are made in the image of God, which should bring from the beginning a mutual respect for one another, a mutual, hey, I need you and you need me. There's an equality of personhood. There's an equality of dignity and value, but there's also an emphasis on the distinction. He says male and female. So if you read Genesis 1 up until this point, if you go through, you can kind of tell that God is creating the world with all sorts of distinctions between one thing and another. So we read that he creates night and day, light and dark, sky and sea, heaven and earth. Each part of creation is distinct and yet complements its counterpart. In the creation of human beings, God yet again distinguishes there's a male and there's a female. They're equal in value as image bearers of God and yet different in form and function. They are, like the rest of creation, complementary counterparts. In fact, our distinctiveness as male and female lies at the heart of what it means to image, to mirror the image of God in the world. So both male and female are necessary as a part of God's good design. There's equality with distinction. Keep going, Genesis 2. Moses, the author, is going to revisit this account with a little more detail. Verse 15, Genesis 2, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God creates Adam puts him in the garden with a calling, with a job to do, to cultivate it, to work it, to keep it, to tend to it. He tells him not to eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, mark this down for later, he only gives that command to Adam. He doesn't give it to both Adam and Eve. So that's going to be important in a little bit. But Adam can't do this alone, right? This is the only part of creation that God says is not good. He says it's not good that the man is alone. And so he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God creates Eve. A helper fit, or in the original Hebrew, corresponding to or complementary to Adam. 
Remember, equal yet different, equal yet complementary. There's a fitting of two parts. God has in mind a team, that these two things would be equal and yet complementary to one another. Now, just so we're on the same page, this word helper in the text is not a weak word. It's not a passive word. It's a strong word. So the Hebrew word translated as helper here is the word azair. Azair can be defined throughout the Old Testament with one of two meanings, either a supporting strength or to rescue and to save. It's not a weak word. It's often used or can be thought of in terms of military reinforcements, right? So if one country is in need, a stronger country that is not in need sends an azair, a help to that country in need. Actually, throughout the Old Testament, this word azair is commonly used to refer to God as a help for his people. So in Psalm 33, we read that God is our help or our azair and our shield, In Psalm 70, God is our Azair and our deliverer. It's a word of power. God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. This is off. I'm going to send him a strong helper. I'm going to send him some powerful reinforcement that will be complementary to him, and together they will make a team. God causes Adam to fall asleep. He takes out a rib, uses it to create Eve. Adam wakes up, as we said last week, is basically like, whoa, woman. And we read this, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God institutes the first biblical marriage between the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve. There's harmony. They're equal, both made in the image of God, and yet distinct, complementary, male and female. This is God's design. All right, pre-curse, pre-fall, pre-sin, all of that. So let's, with that, let's head to Ephesians 5. I want to do a little more setup in the, the little bit before what Cole read for us. Ephesians 5, look at verse 15. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a lot in that passage. There's a lot that we could talk about, but I want to hone in specifically on verses 18 and 21. So Paul says in 18, be filled with the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit dwell within you. And then he says one of the results of being filled with the Spirit is that you would mutually submit to other believers within the church out of reverence for Jesus. So in other words, if you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, which should lead you towards humility in how you sacrifice and serve others as an act of worship to him, which means as Christians, all of us are submitting to someone. All of us are yielding desires or preferences or wants for the good of our Christian brothers and sisters. So Paul sets up that dichotomy. He says, in light of the Spirit dwelling within you, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then throughout the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he's going to outwork that submission into different relationships. So he's going to talk about what we're going to talk about next week, children and parents. And then in two weeks, he's going to talk about bosses and employees. And this week, he talks about husbands and wives. So with all of that, that's the backdrop. That's the intro. I'm telling you, I'm going long. Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, Christ... God's design, all of that. Let's talk about how this plays out, how this plays out in terms of our marriage roles. I actually want to start with the husbands first. Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 25. 
That's what Paul writes. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul says his command very clearly, verse 25. If you want to know, husbands, what's your command today? It's very clear. Love your wives. Love your wives. And then he gives two illustrations to point to or to reflect or to mirror image what this love is supposed to look like. So first, he says, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Well, and the question is, well, how does Christ love the church? Well, then he tells us, he says, he gave himself up for her. So one of the pictures the Bible uses to describe the relationship between Christ and the church is that the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And the great bridegroom, Jesus, came to earth, lives, sacrificed, and died. So the question is, how does Christ love the church? With a self-sacrificing love. Why did he do this? Well, the text tells us that we would be holy and blameless before God. So if the husband is supposed to love his wife as Christ loves the church, then the call of the husband is to sacrifice in such a way that he helps his wife be holy and blameless before God. A sacrifice in such a way that your wife is actually built up towards Jesus, that she's sanctified, that she grows in her faith. And then he gives us a second picture. He says, if that's too much, if you can't love your your wife like Christ loved the church, I'll kind of boil it down a little more. Love her like you love your own body. I love what Paul says. He's like, hey, everybody eats. Basically, he's like, you're you're never too lazy to eat. You're going to eat. You're going to nourish your own body. So if you can't love like Christ loves her, then you might as well love her like you love yourself. Take care of her. You nourish her. You cherish her. No one ever, uh, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Another picture that we have in Scripture of the church is not just the bride of Christ, but also the body of Christ. Christ cherishes the church, nourishes the church. He feeds us. He builds us up. He makes us strong in Him. So with all of that, here's the command that Paul has to the husbands. Loving, humble, sacrificial responsibility. Loving, humble, sacrificial responsibility. Y'all note-takers are like, yes, a chart. Loving, humble, sacrificial responsibility. That's the goal. That's what Christian husbands are called to strive after by the grace of God, to seek to love and to lead their families and their wives towards Christ. Husbands in the room, you have a God-given responsibility for the spiritual health and well-being of your family, full stop. That's your responsibility that God has given you to love them, to love your wife as Christ loves the church, to love your wife as you love your own body, to care for her, to nourish her, to cherish her, to make her sanctified and grown up in Jesus. But I think we all know there's some errors that we have to be careful about. These errors can go one of two ways. So as we think about this joyful, loving, humble, sacrificial responsibility, some of us can lean into the error of passivity. The error of passivity. Others of us can lean into the error of dominance. So the call for husbands and for wives, as we'll see in a second, there's this command. So for husbands, it's loving, humble, sacrificial responsibility, but there's two errors we have to avoid. There's errors of dominance and errors of passivity. Let me deal with the error of dominance first. The error of dominance, I want to call the tyrant. The tyrant. 
This is leadership gone bad through control, manipulation, and force. So flip back with me to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. God creates the world. Everything is good. He gives them this command, puts them in the garden, all of that. They rebel against him. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin enters the world. God is cursing them as a result of sin. This is what he says, verse 16. He says, this is the result of the curse of sin. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. He shall rule over you. This is not a good use of the word rule. This is not fun. This is not good. God says because of sin, part of sin entering the world is that instead of having dominion with God over all created things, the husband will now sinfully be tempted to have unhealthy rule over his wife. This is the husband, the tyrant, who makes every decision on his own, who doesn't listen to his wife, doesn't cherish his wife. His wife and his kids are there just to make his life easier. I worked a really hard day at work, so I went home, and I'm just going to kick back. You guys revolve around me, right? So he's barking orders. He's making everything. Hey, don't be too loud. Don't get in my way. I want to watch what I want to watch on TV. I'm going to sit on the recliner. Everyone revolve around me because I'm tired, and dad's in charge. That's the tyrant. It's leadership, if you can even call it that, without the self-sacrificing part. The tyrant is not the way of Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. That's what Scripture tells us, that he came to give his life away as a ransom for many. Jesus, who had every right to lord over people, who is Lord, the one true Lord, and yet humbled himself, came to earth, sacrificed, and died. The way of Jesus' leadership is not self-exaltation, it's self-sacrifice. It's not tyranny, it's blessing. So marriage in this is we love our spouse as Christ loves the church is a call to die to ourselves and to live to Christ, which also means dying to ourselves and living for our spouse, for their blessing, for their growth, for their sanctification. So if you, as a man, is your first thought of headship or as leadership as a husband is authoritarian, then you don't understand the love of Jesus. If your first thought is, yes, I'm the boss, tell him to him, I can do whatever I want, I'm in charge, then you don't understand what Jesus calls you into. The invitation to sacrifice, the invitation to die to yourself, your schedule, your desires, your ambitions, your wants, to crucify your flesh, and resolve to be faithful. Now, tyranny, I would argue, is the one that our culture is most on guard about. This is part of why we are bent towards not liking this passage. Because immediately when we read Ephesians 5 and think about leadership and submission, our minds go to the worst case scenario of toxic masculinity, right? And I would say it's absolutely a problem. Tyrant men have done indescribable amounts of damage. And their trails of destruction are usually very visible. When a man uses his energy not to give, but to take... And to lord over, that usually has generational impacts of brokenness. But in some ways, we're so afraid as a culture, and I would even say as a church, of this one. We're so afraid of the, tyr- the tyrant. We're so afraid of the tyranny. We're so afraid of the, this, the error of dominance, that we've pushed so hard that we've forgotten that there's also a cliff over here. And that's the error of passivity, what I want to call the coward. Look back at Genesis 3. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, all right, remember, who did God give the command to? This is not rhetorical. (laughs) He gave it to Adam, right? Who did Satan approach? The woman, right? Which begs the question, where's Adam? Right? Is he off naming animals? He's off doing whatever they did? I don't know. 
Where you at, big dog? The text tells us, verse 6, skip down. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband. Womp, womp, womp. Notice this. Who was with her? And he ate. Passivity, right? The devil shows up and he's straight up tempting Eve. Hey, did God really say that you can't eat from this tree? Like, did God really say you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge? Like, did? And it's like, Adam, you're right there. There's no like, hey, bro, shut up. Maybe we shouldn't listen to a snake. Eve, what are you doing? Stop. Listen, like this is like no, he just stands there. Her husband, who was with her. Passivity. He doesn't step up. He doesn't protect. He doesn't sacrifice. He doesn't care. He stands back. Eve eats the fruit. Adam then takes the fruit, and sin enters the world. It's passive. Here's a dictionary.com definition for you of passivity. I think it's helpful. Passivity is the acceptance of what happens without active response or resistance. Passivity is the acceptance of what happens without active response or resistance. If you're wondering how to identify a passive man, it's the guy who thinks or says things like, well, this is just how it is. This is just how I am. This is just how our marriage is. It's always going to be this way. We're always going to like barely get along. My kids are always going to be that way. I'm always going to be this. This is just how it is. This is the acceptance of what happens without any active response or resistance. And listen, I can think of maybe no more prevalent or dangerous sin to men right now in the American church than passivity. It's just plaguing us. Partially because of culture's push against men, against tyranny, rightfully. But also a lot of it is because it plays into our sinful desires to be apathetic and lazy. I read a study this week as I was getting ready for this sermon that talked about the likelihood and probability of a whole family coming to Jesus based on who in the family becomes a Christian first. So they said if the kid in the family becomes the first believer in that household, there's a 3.5% probability that anyone else in the family will become Christians. If the mom is the first one to become a Christian, that percentage goes up to 17%. If the dad is the first person in a family to become a Christian, the probability that everyone else is going to become a Christian is 93%. Husbands in the room, dads in the room, your desire and fight for your spiritual health matters way more than you could even imagine for your family. But we're gripped by passivity. We're gripped. We think it's a game. We think it's a joke. And listen to me. Let me say something strongly and speak it directly to the men. Passivity is crippling some of our marriages. Like for some of us, it's kind of a joke. Like for some of us, we know more about the stats of our fantasy football players every year than we do about our wives' hopes and dreams and spiritual health. For some of us, we spend more time planning for our retirement or for our vacations than we do the discipleship of our children. For some of us, let me say it even more strongly, for some of us, we spend more time pursuing images of women that we never meet and will never meet online than we do pursuing our wives in the bedroom. And all of that is sin, and it needs to repent, and it needs to stop. I'm talking to myself here. For some of us, it's laziness and apathy. For a lot of us, it's misplaced energy. We're not passive in all areas of our life. We're just passive in the most necessary priorities that God gave us. So for some of us, yeah, we need to go put down the PlayStation controller. But for a lot of us, we need to actually learn to leave work at 5 p.m. like we said we were. 
and go home and invest in our kids and go home and invest in our wife to actually not, and I'm speaking to myself in the last three nights of my life, not actually turn on the TV and default to watching Survivor. Tim. (laughs) But to actually invest, to actually turn the TV off, to actually turn off Netflix and say, hey, wife of mine that I've committed my life to, how you doing? What's going on in your prayer life? What's going on? What are you reading in the Bible? What are you afraid of right now? What are you hoping for right now? How are the kids doing? What are you afraid of? What are you worried about? For some of us, we're letting fear drive us. I sit with a lot of married couples before they get married, and that's something I hear a lot from the guys is, I'm just, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I don't feel like I'm a good leader. I'm afraid of taking responsibility. I'm afraid of taking accountability. And so we let fear push us back, and we disguise it as, well, we're just, we're a team. When really, we just don't want to take any ownership. We want to pass the decision-making off to our wives so that if it goes poorly, she's also the one to blame instead of us. Instead of taking ownership, saying, no, I'm going to sacrifice. And listen, the call of a a man, a call of a husband, is not to be passive or to be a tyrant. The call is to follow Jesus, who is neither a passive king nor a tyrant. Jesus stepped into our world. He took on flesh. He took on our sin. He sacrificed himself on the cross that we could be forgiven. So he's not passive. He didn't see us in our sin as a result of Genesis 3 and say, man, that really stinks, but this is how it is. Now he stepped into our world and into our brokenness, took on flesh, died the death we deserve, and yet rose again. But he's also not a tyrant. He woos us to him with his love and his mercy. The Bible says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. He's not a tyrant. He's also not passive, and so we follow Jesus into how we love our spouses, how we lead our families, how we love our kids. I'm going to give you a really quick, helpful, just practical reframe that I think will help a ton in this. When you leave work at the end of the night, whether it's a drive home commute, it's a walk upstairs or downstairs if you're working from home, you are not leaving work and heading into whatever you want to do time. You're heading into your second job. It's a simple reframe. It was shared with me. Hey, when I'm heading home from work, I'm not heading into, well, I worked a hard day, which is all good, and I supported my family, which is all good, so now I get to kick back and do whatever. You're heading into your second, and I would argue one of, if not the most important job you're going to do all day, which is to love your spouse, to love your kids, if you have kids, to serve them. And so reframe your mind. Say, Lord, I'm not stepping into this is the me time that I just earned and deserve. You're stepping into, hey, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I engage here? I don't want to be absent emotionally. I don't want to be absent physically. How do I step in? Let me give you some diagnostic questions real quick. Questions I want you to ask yourself and ask your wife this week. Number one, would your wife describe your love for her as passive, oppressive, or sacrificial, and why? Would your wife describe your love for her as passive, oppressive, or sacrificial, and why? Number two, what is one way you can better sacrifice for the holiness of your wife moving forward? What is one way you can better sacrifice for the holiness of your wife moving forward? Are we good? Take a breath. Talk to the wives. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Skip down to verse 33. Let me read that one to you. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives, if you're wondering what your command is, it's really simple. It's right there at the very beginning of chapter, or verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. 
The command Paul gives to wives is the specific shape that their love is to take. So if the husbands are called to love their wives through humble, sacrificial leadership, wives are called to love their husbands through humble, sacrificial submission. This is the command on the, on the lives of wives. It's joyful, humble, sacrificial submission. Joyful, humble, sacrificial submission. Now, I want to be honest. I know that this rubs against our modern world. Our modern world hates the idea of submission and authority. We're living in the age of liberation, right? Anything that prohibits our rights or our privileges or our desires is to be resisted. I mean, even just think about the rise of entrepreneurship, right? Like we all are entrepreneurs basically now, right? Because we don't want to be our own boss. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And I think part of the rub and frustration with this command in verse 22 is because our minds and your minds immediately go to the lowest common denominator. So when you read verse 22 and you, you hear, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands, ask to the Lord, you immediately think about all the things we just said were bad, the toxic masculinity, the oppressive, the tyrant, the passive, and you think, I'm supposed to submit to that? I'm supposed to follow that kind of leadership. But here's the deal. God is not anti-authority. That is not anti-authority. Now, he's, not anti, he's not also not anti-submission to authority. Now, God is anti-bad authority. God is anti-authority that is self-seeking, authority that leads people into sin and away from him. God is absolutely anti-authority that harms and mistreats others, especially at the gain of the leader. God is very much anti-bad authority, but God is not anti-authority. God sees and establishes good authority throughout the scripture, throughout history, throughout our lives. So even within the Trinity, there's different levels of authority within the Trinity, right? The son submits to the father, the spirit and the, and the, the spirit submits to the son and the father. God gives elders a spiritual authority over the church. He gives parents a spiritual authority over their children. God designates different government officials to have authority over their domain. God sees good authority as a necessary thing for human flourishing. So here in the scriptures in Ephesians 5, Paul plays that out into the roles of husbands and wives. And he commands wives, submit to your own husbands. Now let's talk about that word submit. So the word submit here is translated often or can be translated as to arrange under. It's this idea of turning loose of a pers personal or selfish agenda to gladly live for the good of others. It's a response to, hopefully, everything we just talked about with husbands, that as husbands sacrificially and joyfully and humbly lead, that a wife comes up under that graciously and sacrificially. Now, here's some important things I want to note about this command before we talk about the errors. First, Paul says that wives should submit to their own husbands, their own husbands. This is not a command for every woman to submit to every man. This particular passage, Ephesians 5, does not have implications for whether a woman can be president or CEO or managers. It's not generic women submit to men. That's against the bounds of scriptures here. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husband. Second, Paul grounds this command in the wife's submission to the Lord. So this is not this idea of bullish surrender or this idea of forced servitude. It's a joyful, voluntary submission of, I submit to Christ as a follower of Jesus, and so part of the way that I submit to Christ is by submitting to the authority that he has put over my lives, the person who is responsible for me and our family. It's a part of how you follow Christ, if you are a married woman. Third, when Paul says in all things to submit in everything to their husbands, he means all areas of life. It's not a command to follow your husband into sin. So when he says all things, he doesn't mean if your husband's asking you to do stuff that is outside the bounds of scripture, you go, well, I got to submit, I got to follow. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying in all different areas 
of life. All right, let's talk about the errors. Let's talk about the error of passivity first. So the error of passivity, passive women, and I say this not jokingly, but with sadness, they're doormats. Day after day, month after month, year after year, it's this whatever you say, whatever you say, whatever you say. It doesn't contribute at all to the decision-making process. She has no preferences, no desires, no voice. Listen to me. Submission doesn't mean you leave your brain at the altar. It doesn't mean you also don't bring spiritual strength to the table. It doesn't mean you aren't responsible for your spiritual health or the spiritual discipleship of your children, and you just sit back and say, well, he's responsible, he's in charge, I'm just going to let him do whatever. That's not the call of submission. The call of submission is to bring strength. Being in a Zaire necessitates that you are a source of strength in your relationship to support him, to come alongside of him, to push him into leadership. Now, just like the culture is afraid of the tyrant man, I think that we're afraid also, a lot of times, rightly so, of the woman who becomes the doormat. Women who are taken advantage of. Women who are thought of as less than, who are harmed and abused. And that's wrong, and we're going to declare that forever as a church, that that is wrong. It's not the goal. In light of that, the swing has been to the other side, which is also not God's design, and that's the area of dominance, what we're called the usurper. The usurper. It's not a word we tend to use in 2021, so let me define it for us. A usurper, according to the Bible, is a person who takes a position of power wrongfully or by force. A person who takes a position of power wrongfully or by force. In response to the leadership of her husband, even even if it's the most gracious and sacrificial and loving leadership, there's something within you that still wants to rebel. I got this. I'm going to take over. I'm going to take control. And God actually says this is going to happen. Genesis 3.16, let's read it again. He says, as a result of sin, here's what's going to happen. Verse 16, he says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. He says, because of sin, your desires will go against, they'll rebel, they'll want to push back against how he's trying to lead. And here's the deal. Let me say some things strongly to you in love. Some of you married women in the room have absolutely cut the leadership legs out from under your husband. Not even trying to sometimes, sometimes trying to. You just cut it. You think subconsciously or consciously, well, I'm more gifted. I'm more of a natural leader here. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to take charge. I want to say this clearly. We're not talking about gifting or personality. We're talking about roles. And a role is whose responsibility it is. And God doesn't give you the role of spiritual leader in your house. Your husband is the one who will stand before God accountable for how he leads your family. God gave this role to your husband, and he's called you to come up under that with joy. Some of you have justified it by saying, well, my husband is passive, so I need to take control. The Bible actually says that's a wrong response to a wrong situation. That it's wrong that your husband is passive. Yes, absolutely, and amen. But it's also wrong to respond to that by thinking, well, the answer is then i got to take control. The Bible would say, no, the answer to that is to push him forward in his leadership, to pray for him, to pray for yourself and your own ability to come up under his leadership, to encourage him, to support him. Some of you, your response to this passivity in your husband has been pride. You have a good desire. I want him to lead. I want him to lead our family. I want him to lead me. I want him to lead our marriage. But instead of praying for him and encouraging him and supporting him, you start puffing yourself up. 
start arguing with him about what he's doing or not doing, questioning every little decision he tries to make about how you know better and you're a better leader. You start gossiping about him and his lack of spiritual health to your friends in your community group. And neither of these are God's design. You're not called to be a doormat. You're not called to be a usurper. You're called to joyful, humble, sacrificial submission. That's the shape your love is called to take towards your husband. So let me give you some practicals. One of the things I hear often in premarital counseling is, what does this look like? Okay, it tells me to to respect. It tells me to love. What does this look like? Let's look at verse 33 again. I think that word respect is really important. Paul says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. There was a study done a few years ago that found that about 75% of men would rather be lonely and unloved than inadequate and disrespected. Just think about that for a second. Three-fourths of men would rather be lonely and unloved than feel inadequate or disrespected. Wives, your husband's need to have respect is deep. It's deeper than he's, deeper than he's willing to admit, because a lot of us aren't good with our emotions. It's deeper than he even knows. The Bible, I think, is on to something here as it thinks about the roles of husbands and wives where it says, hey, if you want your husband to be loved by you, to feel loved by you, show him that you respect him. If a man feels respected, he's going to feel loved. Here's some easy, tangible ways for you to grow in your respect for your husband. First, pray for him. Just pray for him. Pray for him. Lord, I want him to lead. Right now, I feel like there's some passivity. I feel like there's some, some tyranny. Like I just want him to lead faithfully and joyfully and humbly. And second, just pray for him. While you're at it, pray for yourself. Pray for your own heart. God, help me come up under his leadership. Help me to support him. Help me to, to come alongside as a team to push our family along. Maybe another really easy way to respect your husband. Encourage him. Just encourage him. Encouragement's not, uh, hey, that shirt looks really good. Encouragement is, hey, here's how I see the Lord working in you. Lindsay, my wife, has gotten really, really good at this over the past year. She's always been a good encourager, but I've just seen it grow a ton since we moved to Charlotte. And there are times legitimately where she will say something to me, and it's like just encouragement to my soul. And literally, like, I hear these things, and she's just like so pointed and like, hey, I see the Lord doing this in you, growing this in you, working this out in you. And literally, my gut response is like, point me to the nearest brick wall because I'm running through it. (laughs) Right? Like, am I married guys in the room? Am I wrong? right? Like she just tells me like, hey, I see the Lord working in this. I just see him growing you. And I'm like, I got the Holy Spirit inside of me and my woman behind me. So I'm running through a wall. (laughs) Like I'm just doing it. Your husband's need for respect is deep. Encouragement is deep. Let me give you one more. Watch how you talk about your husband in public. One of the the women on our, our teaching team said this. I thought it was really helpful. She said, the way you talk about your husband in public should make other people want to be friends with him. The way you talk about your husband when he's not around to other men, to other women, should make them want to be friends with him. Listen, if you tease your husband in public, how you talk about him is pointing out flaws or, or trying to undercut him, that's going to do something to him. It's going to mess with him. It's going to cut his legs out from under him. If you're always making, well, it's just, a, it's just a joke, it hurts. Not just a joke. I'm not saying there's not a place to share struggles, real burdens with the women in your CG. I'm talking about watch how you talk about it, watch how you share, watch your heart, what you desire. Let me give you a few probing questions, and then I promise we're going to land the plane. Number one, would your husband describe your submission to him as a doormat, a usurper, or joyful? Would your husband describe your submission to him as a doormat, a usurper, or joyful? Number two, what is one way you can better support your husband's leadership moving forward? What is one way you can better support your husband's leadership moving forward? 
I want you to pray about these questions. Ask them to your husband. Husbands, ask the other questions to your wives this week. Let me end with this. Let's end with the gospel. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. Let's read it one more time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, really each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The call of a husband is loving, sacrificial, humble responsibility for his wife. And the call of a wife is loving, joyful, and humble submission to her husband. All of this with the goal of putting the gospel on display for the watching world. I've not been married very long. I've been married for six years. There's much, much, much that I have to learn about this, but here's the one thing that I do know, and I learned this very early on, probably week one of marriage. The gospel is our only hope. It just is. I was doing a wedding a few weeks ago, and uh, I got done with the little like homily sermonette thing, and somebody came up to me and said, that's really good. Like It was better the first time, but that was great. And I said, it was, it was new. I just wrote it. And he was like, weird. It sounds like all the other sermons you do at weddings. And I said, that's because I say the same thing. You need the gospel. I need the gospel. We need the gospel. You cannot love your wife as you're called to love her without the good news of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You cannot love and come up under and serve your husband the way you're called to and submit to your husband the way you're called to without the good news of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's our only hope. We need Jesus, not just as an idea, not just as a a good example, but as the one who actually died for all of the ways we're really bad at this and all of the ways we're trying to figure it out, and all of the ways we're trying to repent to God and to each other. We need the gospel in this. I'm hopeful. I'm praying for our marriages. Single folks, again, we're going to apply all of this on the podcast, so I really encourage you to listen to that. We're going to talk about it more and get that out to you guys. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for the marriages in our church, and then we'll worship. God, we love you. God, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for the good news of the gospel. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you knew and know that we can't save ourselves, we can't live into these relationships as you call us to live. God, you throw out this big, huge thing of that our, our marriage is supposed to point to the gospel. It's rightfully impossible, that's rightfully overwhelming. But in your goodness, you don't just leave us with, go try. I mean, you died for our inabilities. You give us new hearts, new desires. You put your Holy Spirit within us to work and to will for your good pleasure. God, so would you help us? Help us to love you, to desire you, to follow after you, Lord, because it's in following after you that we're able to live this out more and more. God, it's in growing our love for you that we're able to love our spouse. I just pray for the marriages in our church, God, the ones that are thriving. God, would you help them continue to thrive? Would you help them look around and how they can serve other marriages within our church? God, I pray for the ones that feel like they're on the brink and they don't know what they're doing and they don't know if they can hold on and they don't know how it got this bad. Lord, I pray gospel healing, redemptive power in their marriages. And everybody in between, God, would you help us remember the gospel to lean into this together? God, we need you. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.